This is Crane's Daily Gist. I'm Amy Guth. On this episode of the podcast, Northwestern University furloughs 250 staff members as it faces likely budget shortfalls over the next two years as a result of the pandemic. We'll talk about that and other stories today on the podcast. But first, this word from our sponsor. We are all navigating uncertain times, and a big part of that includes concerns over financial security. At Chicago's bank, Wintrust is ready to help. Whether you're looking for refinance solutions to take advantage of low rates and reduce payments, or a personal or business account that offers 15 times the standard FDIC insurance, Wintrust has got you covered. We're in this together. We'll get through it together. Find a location to call at Wintrust.com slash find us. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com slash SBL. Abbott Labs is launching a second COVID antibody test as testing demand remains high despite uncertainties over immunity. And local hospital CEOs take pay cuts amid COVID-19. Earlier today, I spoke with Crane's healthcare reporter, Stephanie Goldberg, by phone for insight. Here's what she had to say on those stories and more. It's their second antibody test. It's actually their their fourth COVID-related test to get emergency use authorization in total. Two of those are to detect the virus in real time, the two antibody tests are actually blood tests. And the way they work is they aim to show whether patients were exposed to the virus based on what I'll call the infection-fighting proteins in their blood, the antibodies. These tests have obviously are going to be a big part of figuring out how widespread COVID is. Some of them are prone to false positives, which would make it seem like you had maybe been exposed to the virus if you had not. So you do have to watch out for that. But this antibody test from Abbott actually boasts a 99.6% or more accuracy rate, meaning that you're likely not going to get a false positive. You know, there's so much conversation around antibody testing. And and I fear that like many things here in this moment of pandemic, that words get a little bit, I don't want to say misused, but perhaps overused and start to kind of take on a little bit wider meaning than they actually mean. So I think in discussion about antibodies, context for talking about them is really useful. Are you seeing concern about that from the medical community? Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> the slightly longer answer is that you'll notice that when I refer to them as infection-fighting proteins, which is obviously language that the experts are using right now, I did not cover the question of immunity, even though that's technically where the brain goes, I think, when you talk about infection-fighting. But what the antibody testing does not currently address is whether these antibodies actually make you immune, so unable to contract the virus a second time. That's something that is still being tested. So experts are, are very very concerned that people are going to be taking results from some of these tests and using them to make decisions about whether to continue public distancing or whether to go see a high-risk relative, for example, because at this point, we just really don't know what it means. Frankly, all we know is that you are likely exposed to COVID. Right. And I, I get the sense, this is just anecdotal, but I, I kind of get the sense just watching conversation more informally on social media, things like that. I really feel like we are starting to refer to it a little bit like having the chicken box. And as you point out, it's really important to separate being in possession of antibodies and immunity. Super important to make that distinction very clearly in our language when we talk about it. In fairness to the people that are 
getting these tests or that are spreading that misinformation. Unfortunately, a lot of that information is coming from what I would think would be a credible source. We saw early on a lot of like immediate care facilities that previously had been closed as a result of the postponing elective surgeries and all of that, things like that. They got these antibody machines and immediately started offering them. Uh, clinic in Lincoln Park, for example, is offering them for $250 out of pocket and getting, you know, crazy demand, although they do say that they accept insurance. And the way that they're being marketed is sort of, you know, come see if you have got a lower risk of contracting this infection again, or come see if your chances of getting the infection again are low uh, because maybe you were asymptomatic and actually had it already. The problem with that language is that we just don't really know if it's accurate yet. And it's, great for marketing purposes, but not so great for for accuracy. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the thing is that there's still so much we just don't know. And I think I've said this at least a dozen times on the podcast in the last two months, but we are such an impatient culture. We want to know right now. We want to Google it and have our answer and that's it. And I think this is a moment where that's really being put to the test. We have to just wait for experts to find out. We have to wait for the knowledge to be there that when it's just not there yet. You know, to that, um, one of the experts that I talked to over at Northwestern, I thought just put it so perfectly when she said, you know, people are in a pandemic, people are scared, they want information. We don't have a whole lot of information. This is brand new. And she, you know, essentially said, I'm not going to fault anyone who wants to go do this. The problem is, is that we're just not being as clear as we need to be about the fact that we do not know what the results mean. And frankly, the false positive rate for some other tests, some of which, hundreds of which, I should say, haven't even gotten emergency use authorization from the FDA. So you've got to really be careful about what you're getting and and understand that you should not put yourself or anyone else at risk of contracting the virus just because you've tested positive. Certainly. I want to shift a little bit and talk about another story on your beat. Um, There's a story that you have up today, brand new, about hospital CEOs taking pay cuts amid this COVID crisis. What can you tell me there? The CEO pay cuts are just one of the many cost-cutting measures that we've seen from hospitals. I mentioned very briefly when we were talking about some of those outpatient clinics or immediate care clinics that were at a standstill sort of as COVID was just starting to ramp up and people were not coming in for care. Well, that phenomenon hit hospitals very hard. So with inpatient and outpatient declines ranging from 30 to 70% um, in volume, and obviously that translates to some pretty steep losses. So hospitals have been implementing furloughing workers. Some have implemented pay cuts for CEOs and other senior leaders. Um, among those is, is Advocate Aurora Health, the 28 hospital system. They recently announced that uh, CEO Jim Scottsford would be taking a 50% cut to his base salary. I should note, I don't actually know what his base salary is because the most recent filings are for the year 2018. But at that time, his total compensation was 8.5 million. His base salary, however, was uh, 1.8 million. So in this case, the cut is to the base salary, but not necessarily to the performance incentive bonus part of that. That's correct. And I don't know what that base salary is for this current fiscal year. In making these cuts from CEOs compensation, what is the plan to do with that money? I'll reference Advocate Aurora again because they had a, a pretty clear plan. They said that they expect to save more than $1.5 million across the board from CEO and, and pay cuts among leaders. And that money is actually going to go toward the chain's T 
team member crisis fund. So that's the fund that they put in place to assist employees that are financially affected by the virus. They also are about to start, although they don't use the word furlough, they're about to start making some other pay cuts for workers whose hours have been cut due to, you know, declines in volume and things of that nature. So, I mean, there are, there are a lot of things at play here. It's not just salaries that are being impacted by this. In your reporting for the story, you looked at a lot of different hospital systems. Are any of them making other moves that really stand out to you? Yeah, University of Chicago Medical Center recently announced that it was furloughing workers in non-clinical positions, so like IT positions, communications positions, in addition to that, postponing planned capital projects. So any money, basically, that the system is going to be putting into any projects are going to be focused on things that improve safety or that are necessary sort of in the midst of COVID. And that was having seen, uh, they reported a $70 million decline in operating revenue for both March and April. So I mean, the financial impact is steep among hospitals, and they're all sort of implementing cost-cutting measures in, in different and similar ways. And some of these measures were things you and I talked about months and months ago, things of consolidation and kind of shoring up and combining systems and things like that. Some of those very, very big, big projects, are any of those going to be delayed as far as you know for any of these cost-cutting measures? That's a big question. The answer is almost certainly yes. There are a couple, were a couple recently announced projects that I'm still looking into to sort of figure out where we stand on those because, you know, it goes without saying all these projects take money and right now the health systems are just bleeding. I mean, well, that's probably a bad analogy to use when talking about healthcare, but you know what I mean, Amy? I mean, it, it, the financial impact is, is severe and so a lot of those big projects could potentially be put on the back burner as they try to deal with the immediate financial impact of caring for patients and buying more personal protective equipment like face masks and gloves, things that are needed to treat patients with COVID and things of that nature. So you mentioned the elective surgeries. You wrote about this deadline of May 11th that some hospitals in Illinois could start opening up some of those elective surgeries, again, if certain safety criteria have been met. Have you um, talked with any healthcare professionals about that and seen any big moves in that area? Yeah, today is the big day um, that everyone has been looking forward to, everyone that can at least. So the state basically said as of as of today, as of May 11th, hospitals and ambulatory surgical centers can start to perform both inpatient and outpatient procedures if they meet certain criteria, like you mentioned. So one of those is testing patients for COVID-19 within 72 hours of a scheduled procedure. An expert at Loyola Medicine, which is actually uh, going to be starting to implement elective surgeries again as of today, had mentioned that one of the reasons for that is because the risk of complications from surgery are so much higher if you have COVID and, and don't know it, for example. So that is, you know, it's a safety measure that you have to take to make sure that you don't have an unforeseen issue with someone that you've scheduled for surgery. Loyola is a good example. I'll stick with them because they have a pretty detailed plan for, you know, reopening elective procedures. The surgeries that are closest to emergency surgeries, if you will, closest to the to urgent procedures will go first. So, you know, as we've talked about on here before, elective doesn't necessarily mean just for fun. You know, some of these procedures are like heart procedures, things that you really do need to have so that your health doesn't deteriorate. So they are going to be seeing, you know, which ones need to go first and sort of going from there. Well, nonetheless, a busy time on your healthcare beat. And I appreciate you taking time out to talk today. Thanks so much, Steph. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Mariano's parent company ends the so-called hero bonus for frontline workers during the pandemic. We'll dig deeper into that story and others right after this. 
Nora, a daily roundup of stories about how the coronavirus outbreak is impacting business and the economy. Sign up for our free newsletter at chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update. All one word. The paywall has been dropped for all coronavirus stories at chicagobusiness.com, but we do encourage you to consider subscribing to support our journalism. And if you receive cranes in print at the office and are missing it while working from home, you can always access the electronic edition anytime at chicagobusiness.com slash digital edition. Again, that's chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update for the free newsletter and chicagobusiness.com slash digital edition. So you don't miss a thing from the print edition while you're working from home. Northwestern University plans to furlough 250 employees as it faces a $90 million budget shortfall this year and likely another next year as the result of the impact from the COVID-19 pandemic. The university said in a letter today that it will also cut back on contributions to its workers' retirement accounts and temporarily increase the rate at which it takes money out of its billion-dollar endowment to fund operations. Last month, the school froze faculty and staff salaries, halted staff hiring and paused some facilities projects. The note signed by President Morton Shapiro, interim provost Kathleen Haggerty, and senior vice president Craig Johnson said, quote, even if we resume on-campus activity in the fall, as we hope to do by phases, we are likely to see a significant shortfall in the 2021 fiscal year as well, perhaps as great as or greater than what we are experiencing this year. The letter also said those leaders of the university will take at least a 20% pay cut as part of the austerity measures, and deans at the school will see a pay cut of 10%. Nearly one-third of the virus relief loans that public companies now say they're returning to the government were arranged by J.P. Morgan Chase. The nation's largest bank drew criticism after the U.S. government began channeling hundreds of billions of dollars through lenders to help pandemic-impacted small businesses pay their employees. Even as mom-and-pop operations complained that they couldn't get access to the forgivable loans, J.P. Morgan disclosed that it had secured them for most of its larger clients that wanted them. And the small business up uproar helps explain why so many of the givebacks are now flowing through J.P. Morgan. Although the bank is among thousands of lenders processing the relief applications, its customers account for 13 of the roughly 40 companies that have told the SEC that they're backing out of the loan deals, that according to data compiled by Fact Squared as of last Thursday. And those include restaurant operators Ruth's Hospitality Group, Potbelly Corporation, more on them in just a minute, as well as Shake Shack, which sought $10 million or more each. A J.P. Morgan spokesperson said the bank worked quickly to distribute federal relief funds and informed its clients when the government clarified who could tap the funds. In all, more than 370 public companies have said they tapped the so-called payroll protection program loans to the tune of about $1 billion so far. That's a mere sliver of the nearly $670 billion that the federal government is distributing in the PPP facility, most of which is going to private companies that aren't bound by public disclosure rules. But more givebacks could emerge as companies scrutinize the updated federal guidelines ahead of the May 14th deadline to return the money. J.P. Morgan and several other big U.S. banks were sued by small businesses that accused them of favoring their bigger clients over smaller ones. On April 23rd, in response to public outcry about companies like Shake Shack and the L.A. Lakers getting loans, the U.S. Treasury clarified that public companies with substantial market value and access to capital markets were unlikely to qualify 
qualify. It followed up with a warning that the SBA will review all loans of more than $2 million before they are forgiven. The loans being returned by J.P. Morgan clients were arranged before the Treasury offered its new guidance. In the second round of SBA loans, which went out last week, J.P. Morgan and other lenders said they are prioritizing smaller clients. And somewhat related to that, Chicago-based sandwich chain Potbelly delayed its first quarter earnings report and warned investors today that the pandemic could potentially impact its ability to pay its bills. Chicago-based sandwich chain Potbelly delayed its first quarter earnings report and warned investors today that the pandemic could potentially impact its ability to pay its bills. Since the pandemic hit the U.S. in March, Potbelly tapped into its existing borrowing agreement with J.P. Morgan Chase Bank for the maximum amount of $40 million. And that agreement stipulates that Potbelly follows certain covenants like a minimum level of earnings and the amount of leverage that the company carries. But the drastic hit to total revenues forced Potbelly to implement operational changes that violate the agreement with the bank. In a regulatory filing, Potbelly said our financial performance in the first quarter was and in future fiscal quarters will be negatively impacted. Continuing, as a result, it is likely that we will be unable to continue to comply with certain covenants contained in the credit facility. Potbelly added that it was in discussions with the bank to modify its existing agreement. But if J.P. Morgan declines, the acceleration of debt on Potbelly's balance sheet would, quote, adversely affect our operation and financial condition. Share prices tumbled in after-hours trading once the regulatory filing was released, and the company now expects to file the quarterly report no later than June 22nd. In one final story for today, Kroger Company, which owns and operates Mariano's stores here in the Chicago area, is ending its $2 an hour bonus pay for workers working during the coronavirus pandemic. On March 31st, Kroger said it would award the so-called hero bonus for all frontline grocery, supply chain, manufacturing, pharmacy, and call center associates for time worked March 29th through April 18th. That was later extended to May 2nd and then to May 16th. The company also paid paid a one-time bonus of $300 to full-time workers and $150 to part-timers on April 3rd. Grocery store employees are deemed essential workers during the pandemic. The United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, which represents the grocery chain's hourly workers, hit back this week, calling for fair pay and safe stores. The union said in a statement, quote, just because states start to reopen doesn't mean the dangers from COVID are less severe. Continuing, instead, grocery workers' jobs become more dangerous as customer traffic increases. We're already seeing a startling uptick in the number of essential grocery workers testing positive for COVID-19. Kroger, the nation's largest operator of traditional supermarkets, noted that its average hourly wage is $15 and rises to more than $20 an hour when healthcare and other benefits are factored in. The company said in a statement, quote, the Kroger family of companies has invested over $700 million to reward our associates and safeguard associates, customers, and our communities during the pandemic, continuing by saying, we have also provided new career opportunities to more than 80,000 workers nationwide, including those from the hardest hit sectors like restaurants, hotels, and food service distributors to support our retail, e-commerce, manufacturing, and logistics operations. Until tomorrow, that's all for Crane's Daily Gist. Thanks so much to producer Haima Black and today's guest, Stephanie Goldberg. Be sure to find business news, data, analysis, and lots more at Crane's Chicago Business online and in print. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter and LinkedIn. And let's continue the conversation there about these and other business stories most on your mind. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here tomorrow.